Hi, everybody. This is the Play-By-Play podcast with Wayne Larrabee. On this episode of the Play-By-Play, a conversation with John Dodds, our statistician on the Packers Radio Network and a well-connected reporter statistician on NFL and Marquette University basketball. You're listening to the Play-By-Play podcast. John Dodds is an attorney and has a financial services firm in downtown Milwaukee. So you're probably asking, why is he here on this podcast? Is it the markets crashing as we speak? I have more interest in what he or my friend Dave Spano of Annex Wealth Management might have to say at this point, but that's not why John's here to talk about the markets and where they're going and what they're going to do. He's publisher of MarquetteHoops.com, the unofficial sports website for Marquette basketball fans. Unofficial because they talk and speculate and debate about recruiting 365 days of the year, while the official MU website can only talk about recruits after they sign. John started his MarquetteHoops.com website in 1999 to stream his Saturday morning ESPN Milwaukee radio show, and since then has moved the site uh, when the family of network of college sites were acquired by Rivals.com, and he's now at 24-7 Sports, a part of the CBS network. John's been covering the Green Bay Packers home games since 1979 with a media company called Telesports, uh, that helps newspapers and media outlets collect player quotes after the games. Um, in 1982, the Milwaukee Journal asked John to interview NFL players in Green Bay from the opponent locker rooms and it allowed their uh, regular correspondents to go to the Packers locker room. The interesting thing about this from a football standpoint, and we'll get to that a little bit later, he's also worked for the New York Giants and general manager George Young and the L.A. Rams with Jack Faulkner. But more importantly, for many years, he handled Green Bay situations for the Oakland Raiders, 1995 to 2013. In other words, he worked as a game day scout, kind of keeping aware who was doing what, that type of thing. So there's a relationship here uh, with Al Davis. But for most of the uh, his career, it has been Marquette basketball. And in that regard, John has come across some interesting characters, not the least of which is the patron saint of Marquette basketball, Al McGuire. Well, John, part of what you've done uh, in your varied career, and I mentioned um, in the introduction that you're in the financial end of the, uh, of the world and uh, run a finance company, but and obviously uh, a lot of people love to talk to you about the markets crashing about that aspect of it, but you've been a unique individual around Wisconsin sports in Milwaukee in particular, and it starts with your work with Marquette. Tell us a little bit about what you do, because you're on your main stay on their stats uh, team, I know that. Sure. Uh, it all started, my uh, my father was actually a player at Marquette back in the uh, 40s, and he transferred in from uh, from Drake. And uh, so uh, he hurt his knee right away, and they took away his scholarship, and I think uh, that cost him maybe 50 to $75 a semester or whatever it was back in 1948. <laughs> but he stayed in town, and he... Uh, coached high school basketball at Marquette High School in Atosa East for many years and sent a couple players to Marquette. So I was very familiar with the history of Marquette basketball uh, all the way through high school and was able to, because my dad was a coach, got to know Rick Majerus at a young age. Through Rick and working at his basketball camps, I was able to get a job in sports information at Marquette when I was a student from 78 to 82 and uh, wrote for the game program, press guide, did uh, records work, uh, and um, was a backup statistician for TV. HBO used to do games, um, college basketball games. I would work for them. Uh, Dick Enberg, 
uh, other uh, national, Bob Costas, NBC, CBS, I would do stats for them. Uh, then I went to law school at Marquette, and right when I graduated from law school in 85, their head statistician went back to school to get a master's. So they asked me if I wanted to be the statistician. So I said, sure. So I started that in 85. And then in uh, toward the 90s, uh, late 90s, I always wanted, I was always intrigued with radio, always enjoyed mm-hmm. uh, listening to you and Hub Arkish on uh, Pro Football Weekly, and I uh, was always intrigued with how our favorite teams acquire talent and uh, so I bought some time and started a radio show on the ESPN network in 99 and uh, 540 doesn't have a large signal so what I did was try to figure out some way to stream the radio show so market fans across the country could listen to it and that's when my recruiting website started that was with uh, rivals.com at the time so I've gone from rivals to scout. Now it's 24, <laughs> 24-7 sports, depending on who buys who out. Um, and um, so the radio show, I stopped in the uh, uh, about 2004, but the um, website still is going strong. And uh, we call ourselves the unofficial market website because we can talk about uh, recruiting 365 days a year. Marquette can only talk recruiting after they sign. I think what's um, interesting about you uh, and Marquette is your relationship with Al McGuire. Uh, you put together, produced a, a CD of an interview with, with the coach, the former coach. You got there in 78. They, he finished his career in 77 and then embarked on a uh, legendary television career with Dick Enberg and Billy Packer, uh, probably the best uh, television basketball group to call games uh, maybe ever. But um, talk a little bit about the coach. I mean, he he really is still the patron saint of that program uh, all these years later. He really is. He he took the he took the um, the program to a different level, and it was kind of interesting how he got that job. Um, he was up in 1963. I think it was John McGuire from Racine St. Catherine and Al McGuire from Belmont Abbey, and one of the key things was the owner of the Boston Celtics gave a recommendation to Marquette saying, you got to hire this guy. And in Joe Moran's book, You Can Call Me Al, the, the reason why he did that, the story was uh, told that in the um, 50s, Al McGuire bragged that he could shut out Bob Cousy. <laughs> and so the Boston fans really, he was playing for the New York Knicks at the time, and the Boston uh, fans really uh, got excited about it. So when next time that Boston played New York, there was a sellout. There was like 13,000 people in the garden, and they were booing Al McGuire, throwing things at Al McGuire. They put Al McGuire in the second quarter, and he fouled Cousy six straight times. So he didn't score on him, and he fouled out. And uh, Boston won the game, and after the game, the Boston Celtic owner came over to the locker room and said, Hey, kid, you ever need me for anything, I'm there for you. You got 13,000 people to show up for this game. And it was <laughs> it was paid back by sending that resume, that reference, in 1963. So Al started, it, started off uh, at Marquette and was able to get the pipeline from New York. And Al was one of the biggest characters I think we've, we've ever seen. Um, there, was a, there was one story... Uh, when I was in sports information, I received a call from him about 1980. 
And I said, Marquette Sports Information, John speaking. And he said, John, Coach McGuire here. And I yeah. I said, whoa, uh, what do you need, Coach? He said, Billy Packer, Dick Enberg, and I are doing the uh, Iowa-Duke game in the, in the uh, tournament coming up. Could you look up my all-time record against Big Ten teams and my all-time record against Big East or uh, ACC teams? And I said, sure. So I did all the information, found out even when, did all the research, found out when um, South Carolina was in the ACC, did all the the uh, the calculations. And he said, call my wife, um, Pat, at this number. So he gave me his home number. I called Pat up. So the next Saturday, I'm at the Marquette Union, and I'm watching this game, and I'm waiting for this thing to happen. And nothing happened for the whole game, and I knew there was a last TV timeout. So I said to everybody in the room, you know, when Al McGuire was coaching at Marquette, his all-time record against ACC teams was this, and his all-time record against Big Ten teams was this. And the, the, it came back on, and, and uh, Billy Packer turns to Al and says, say, Al, when you were at Marquette, what was your all-time record against ACC teams and your all-time record against Big East teams, or uh, I'm sorry, Big Ten teams? And he said, um, there's silence. And everybody in the room is looking at me, thinking, "How did you know? How did you know that was coming? Or, <laughs> what a coincidence!" And there was silence. And um, he said, "Billy, I had it right here. I just can't find it." <laughs> so that was in 1980. Thirteen years later, fourteen years later, I met St. Petersburg, and Marquette's in the Sweet 16, and I'm in in the uh, media room with Vern Lundquist. We're the only two there, and it's the off day between games. And Al was on TV on the big screen, and we're listening to it, and he said something funny, and and Vern Lundquist said, Al McGuire should be declared by Congress as a national treasure. And I relayed that story, and and Vern Lundquist listened to it, and he said, you know what happened there? And I said, Al couldn't find his info, and he said, no. Um, Billy Packer took his information and hid it. (laughs) I said, Really? He would, he would hide that to make them look bad. He said, those guys would go at each other. They're the best of friends, but they would go at each other to make each other look bad whenever they could. Wow. So uh, I told that to Al later, and he thought that was one of the funniest things ever. And he said, believe me, uh, I had Billy uh, uh, you know, more times than he got me. So, <laughs> but he was, um, he was a very interesting guy. The, the interview, that, one of the first interviews I did um, on my radio show was with Al, and he investigated me. Now, what kind of a interview was he? I, I mean, is he like the coaches today? Uh, you can almost predict how they're going to answer a question or because you, you know what the stock answer is going to be? Or is he a guy that appeared like to the rest of us that he was off the wall and you could ask him anything and, and you had no idea how he was going to answer it? The latter. Yeah? You, so what I did was I... Um, had him go to his office and had him call in. I didn't want him to come to the studio because I wanted to get it as long as possible. And I knew he was not feeling well. He was, uh, I think he would have, I think it was about a year and a half before he passed away. So I know he was slowing down, but I wanted him to be relaxed and just talk to him as long as I could. So I got him for 65 minutes. And what I did was I just plotted out about 16 areas that I wanted to cover. And I didn't have them in order. And I just let him go. And the first couple minutes... He was saying, he was um, he investigated me, and he said, John, I, I've heard about you. I wanted to know why you wanted to have me uh, interview you, why you wanted to interview me. And it turned out that 
he had some estate planning issues and some financial issues that he wanted to go over. Ah. And that's what we, so he always had a, there was always a motive that yeah. Al had. So we, we ended up, I said, at the end of it, I said, coach, can I take you out to lunch or dinner? And he said, no, I'm going to take you out to breakfast and you're going to tell me what you know. <laughs> I said, about broadcasting or about, he said, no, 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 about estate planning, about this is, you know, really? I, thought, I thought, oh, okay. So I met with him two times later and the first time was, Two hours later, he gave me all his financial information, all his family information, and then uh, he called me back and saying, "John, I I deal with an attorney. I deal with a financial firm. I can't I can't work with you. I feel badly that I made you work." And I said, "Coach, I'll give you these recommendations. Just thanks for being on my broadcast. Thanks what you for what you've done to Milwaukee and for Marquette." So we met the second time, or the the second and final time, and. Uh, I had all the had all the information to him, and he wrote it all down. And he said he had one relative that liked to go to the racetrack, and he didn't want to give him money. And I said, "Well, put it in a trust and have the trust pay income to him, so he can only you know do that." So he's writing all the things down, and and uh, it, it was really interesting. Um, you never quite knew where you stood, or what you at least on, you never knew what wavelength he was on. He said to me that, uh, he said, John, I've met a lot of uh, uh, celebrities in my life, and you know who I'm meeting with next week? I said, no. He said, Tom Cruise. <laughs> I said, Tom Cruise? You're meeting Tom Cruise? He said, do you, do you know Tom Cruise? And I said, yes, I do. Uh, the Color of Money, A Few Good Men, uh, Top Gun, some of the best movies I've seen. And he's kind of looking at me and he says, really? He said, and his wife at the time, Nicole Kidman, she's a uh, she's an actress too, and they have two kids. He said, yep, I understand that. They have two kids. And I said, they're both adopted. And it, I'm suddenly thinking, I know an awful lot more about Tom Cruise than I you know, thought about talking to him. So he's, he's nodding, and this conversation goes on for about five more minutes. And then he said, uh, I said, where are you meeting him? And he said, at the airport, he's going to fly into Mitchell Field, and I'm going to meet him. I said, well, coach, if you need someone to drive you out there, I can drive you out there and drop you off if you'd like. And he said, oh, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. But uh, he said, I'm going to, you know, when I meet with him, I'm going to give him a piece of advice. You know what I'm going to tell him? And I, I kind of did the EF Hutton. Yeah. Said, what? And he said, um, I'm going to tell him, be very patient with your team this year because Cornell Henry can't always play the point guard consistently. And I took a step back, and he was talking about Tom Crean. Uh, you know, the whole thing, and Tom Crean had two had two kids, just like Tom Cruise, and all that. He's looking at me. I didn't know he was in a movie. And he was in Top Gun, and he's kind of looking at me. And I, <laughs> I thought I've never had a conversation in my life where you know we were talking at different different levels. But yeah. that that was Al. Um, but and then he he said to me, "Do you collect anything?" And I said, "Well, I collected." Um, I collected uh, stamps and coins when I was a kid, but not much. And he's kind of looking at me like, nah. I said, well, I collected matchbox cars. And he said, you did. Well, could you bring them? I said, could I bring them? He said, yeah, bring them. So I stopped off at my mom's house, grabbed my matchbox car collection, put them in my trunk. And uh, after after we were done with our second meeting, Al walks out, walks into my, we opened my trunk, starts going into my collection saying that I can tell an awful lot about you as a person by your matchbox car collection. How so? 
exactly. He said you kept the original boxes and you kept the original price tags. Do you know why that's important, John? I said, well, the price tag could probably carbon date it to tell you when I bought them at Ben Franklin. I was seven years old when it was 39 cents in like 1967. And he said, exactly right. He said, you are a very organized person. You are, this, this collection is very impressive. The next day in the mail, I get this Matchbox Car Collective yearbook with an autograph to John, the best estate planner in the city, all the best, Al McGuire, written on on it. You still have that? I still do, and he touched a lot of people at the end of his life like that, where he gave away a lot of the things he He, collected. He he was a collector himself of um, uh, toy soldiers, right? World War, uh, not World War, um, Civil War uh, pieces and and little uh, statuettes, right? And he gave those away to to everyone, and uh, he would... I asked him why he stayed in Milwaukee when he could have settled in uh, New York or Los Angeles or anywhere. And he said, I loved getting on my motorcycle mm-hmm. and I would drive out to the corner of Capitol Drive and Calhoun. And if I looked right, if I looked left, I could go into Milwaukee and go to Marquette and do things. If I looked right, I could go out to the flea markets all around Wisconsin. And that's what I did really the last 10 years of my life, and people just left me alone. That's great, yeah. Al McGuire um, obviously changed uh, basketball at Marquette and put the program on the map where it still resides. Um, Tom Crean did come in, <laughs> not Tom Cruise, but Tom Crean came in and coached. And Tell me a little bit about, and by the way, we're talking with John Dodds um, from Marquette University, uh, a statistician at Marquette, and, and does a lot of other things as well, and runs a, a, a radio show or a website uh, that deals with Marquette recruiting. But talk a little bit about Crean and the run they made to the Final Four with Dwayne Wade. Did you see that coming? I did not. In fact, um, when I was talking to Mike Dean about five years before that, Mike Dean was saying, John, you people at Marquette think you can get back to the Final Four, and you can't. What you should do is buy the arena and make it a pit. You can put end zone seating in, increase the capacity to about 12,000, go with the arena, Go with the NIT three out of five years, maybe one run to the Sweet 16. That's all you can do here. You got to face it. And I said, well, Mike, what we need is Al McGuire and we need George Thompson. Those are the two things. If we have those two, we can we can get back. And I think I, I've seen Kevin, Kevin O'Neill brought us back where we had 19,000 fans in the Bradley Center for s- certain games against UAB and Cincinnati and in game St. Louis at the end of uh, his run. So I thought you're, you're looking you're looking in the wrong direction. Well, Dean was replaced, great game coach but just wasn't the right fit. Crean comes in and I asked Joni Crean in the opening when he at the opening press conference. I said, "Tell me something about your husband that we don't know about and we should know." And he, she said that no matter where we are, if, if we're walking down the beach, uh, out of family vacation, he's thinking about recruiting. All he does is he's, he's, he's marketing, how I can market, how I can get better, how I can approach these kids, how I can get them to come to Marquette. So when he started in, in 99, Marquette was in 
either the red, white, or blue division of Conference USA. I still can't remember which one it was. They were in the old gym. About 10 games, 15 games were on TV, and we hadn't been to a Final Four in 20 years. By 2003, he got Dwayne Wade, a signature player. We've been to the Final Four. We're in the Big East, and we had the Al McGuire Center built. So, And, and uh, joining the Big East was probably the biggest thing because that made us, I thought, coach-proof. We're not dependent on an Al McGuire to keep the program going if you're in the Big East if you're in a good conference, you can always get a top assistant coach. Marquette will be a job that'll be a cut above a lot of the others. So that that was a Tom Crean was a that was a key time for Marquette and and uh, and then when he left, he left us with Buzz Williams. Buzz Williams was on his staff, so that was another terrific thing. So all total, the I thought Kevin O'Neill saved the program. When it was, some people at Marquette wanted to even go Division Three. They mm-hmm. wanted to take it back, back in the late '80s. But then Tom Crean kind of took that and went the next step, and then Buzz took it and he went the next step. So let me ask you this, uh, and we're jumping around here now because yep. uh, I agree with you. I think Tom Crean took this uh, program to another level, and and that's kind of the level they have to answer to today. Um, but before that, Rick Majerus, um right-hand man for Al McGuire on that bench, became so successful out at Utah. Why didn't it work here? That's the question, the one question that I would go to my grave wondering about. It's yeah. just a, it's, and I asked Al McGuire Here's about, a Milwaukee guy. His mom lives in Milwaukee and all this stuff, and, and he's got the program. He becomes the head coach. Why didn't it work? Well, and Rick Majerus is one of those special guys that um, I first met him when I was nine, my dad was uh, in charge of Hart Park for one summer, the Hart Park uh, playground, and he said, see that guy over there? That guy's Rick Majerus. He's the worst guy here, but he'll be the first one here and the last one to leave. He would come over to the house, and he would uh, exchange uh, uh, ideas on how to break a press offense with my dad or press, press defense with my dad. So he was a student of the game. He loved the game, and... Rick Majerus, when he when he recruited, he become he he was a special recruiter. He became a member of the family, where it was Uncle Rick or cousin Rick. He becomes a member of the family, and he could build that relationship. Well, everybody has their three piece suits on. Rick would come in a sweatsuit, so he was kind of an original, probably the most complex guy I've ever met. He was the toughest guy I've ever met. He could send you into a basket support on a game, but he was the most sensitive guy. He took a year off coaching because his mom had cancer. Mm-hmm. When, have you ever, when would a coach ever do that? It was amazing. But I think um, I, asked Al, I asked Al about that when I interviewed Al. One of the questions was, why didn't Rick make it here? And he said, John, I think he needed to get away. He, he got away, and I think he became a better coach at Ball State. He ran his own program, got away from my legacy, Hank's legacy. And then uh, he was hired at Utah because there was a connection. When Rick was coaching high school at uh, Market High and at grade school at St. Seb's, one of the great grade school teams we've ever had in the city where I think five of the starters in that grade school team in eighth grade all went D1 
College to Creighton to Marquette to Wisconsin, Jimmy Smith and Jeff Jonas, and there's Joe Hauser, uh, Wayne Heidenreich, all of these great players. Well, uh, Jeff Jonas was out in Utah, and he suggested Rick Majerus. So, and I think he had a lot of weight out there. So one of the one of the powers that be hired Rick for Utah, and then it was off the charts. He was he knew he knew the he was the gym rat. He was the intellectual. Uh, he had the the um, the relationships, and it was off the charts watching him watching him beat Lou Olson in that game in nineteen. 19- 98, uh, where they beat Arizona, where he went the triangle in two was just a beautiful thing to watch when he beat Miles Simon and Bibby uh, Jefferson. They had a great Arizona team, and he went to the Final Four and had Kentucky on the ropes, and they just gassed out with about eight minutes to go. He could have won the national championship, but uh, Tubby Smith's Kentucky team beat him. But what a what a run that was! It was a great run at Utah, and he did it all out of a hotel room. He he was a strange individual, different kind of individual in a great way, as was Al McGuire, and they were two unique personalities at Marquette, and you're right, I almost forgot about Hank Raymonds, who actually did succeed uh, Al at Marquette and did a heck of a job with that program. But the, the, the tradition that is Marquette today was started uh, primarily to those of us on the outside looking in by Al McGuire. Today, Marquette basketball, Big East, uh, big time. Um, you know, I, I think Steve Wojciechowski coming in uh, from Duke. Um, you know, it, it's it, it, a lot is expected. John, where is this program today? Obviously, they've had some ups and downs this year. Uh, they've they've struggled to make uh, the NCAA tournament uh, in the past. They did a couple of years ago, and and you know that. But the expectation is NCAA every year. Um, is that going to happen? Do you think under Wojo? I think it will, and this is a this is a tough rebuild. Now, I tend to be more patient than the typical Marquette fan because I have a great memory and I kind of have a, a time frame of from World War II back. I've seen various. I've seen the Bob Duquette rebuild, the Mike Dean rebuild. Now, um, unfortunately, uh, when Buzz left, and we need to rebuild there, and rebuilds are tough, and it seems that. For some reason, Wojo has discovered the formula for perpetual youth, and it's perpetual youth at point guard. They're always they always seem to be young, and what happened was it's they they recruited they had a really good recruiting class their first year with Henry Ellenson, a top ten player, right? But then they had uh, Tracy Carter as their point guard, and then Haney Cheatham as their point guard. That year, they were trying to get some graduate point guard transfers, and they lost two of them to Louisville, and probably because the on-campus entertainment option at Marquette wasn't as, as impressive as at Louisville, and or whatever the reason was. But um, the next year, they added Andrew Rousey as a transfer and Marcus Howard. And the problem with that was that... Uh, Tracy Carter then decided, I'm not going to play, so he transferred. Then the same thing happened to Dwayne Wilson. It was a point guard. Dwayne Wilson transferred. So what you're seeing now is that Marcus Howard is a sophomore. He had the young guard as a freshman, and he's a young sophomore. Uh, he was a 17-year-old freshman. Now he's an 18-year-old sophomore. And then you have Andrew Rousey as your point guard. 
Uh, Andrew Rousey is very inconsistent. He scored thirty-eight point or thirty-five points and twenty-eight points in the two wins over Georgetown, but he scored zero against Butler in that game that they lost uh, after uh, Nova. So it's it's very inconsistent with the guards. I think that's going to change. Uh, they're the youngest team in the Big East, which on one hand is hard to believe since this is Wojo's fourth year, but next year when Sam Hauser and Marcus Howard become juniors, they have a transfer, a junior transfer from Nebraska named Ed Morrow, who Dennis Krause was at a um, practice uh, about three weeks ago and said Ed Morrow was the best player on the floor, which is good to hear. He's a power forward, kind of a Nigel Hayes type player. So he'll be in next year. Matt Held will be a senior next year. So they're finally going to have more upperclassmen next year. And the Big East is a league where it seems like there's veteran guards that can abuse inexperience and they can abuse Marquette's guards because they're small. And uh, Andrew Rousey is 5'10", Marcus Howard is 5'11", and they're not good defensive players. And Marquette doesn't have a shot blocker. So it's been very inconsistent this year. It's a a great game, a a bad game, a great game, a bad game. But you can uh, Marquette, on the positive, it's probably the best offensive team I've ever seen in Mm. terms of shooting. They've... I don't know how many games they've had in the 90s this year, but it's been a lot. They they have their problem from what I've seen on the outside looking in is they don't play very good defense, uh, and that's been a, a staple the last couple of years under Wojo, unfortunately. And in the Big East, you have to stop somebody, and um, I, I, the Big East is a major league conference. And you're right, John. You don't win it with young players. You win it with men, and that's how you have to win the Big East. I, I look at you know you've got Xavier, you've got Villanova up there, uh, you've got Seton Hall, Creighton. Has uh, has had some ups and downs, but they're they're a pretty potent team, um, you know. And, and even last year, two years ago, Providence was a very good team. There's no question, however, that Marquette can play at this level. It's just a matter of how how well they can factor in the race over the course of year after year. And that's the thing. I think people are hoping that uh, Wojo can get that done. He certainly has the pedigree coming off, um, you know, the Duke tree. Well, and I've said on my message board, and I know uh, a lot of people don't want to hear this, but there's the youth card, and it's as you as you mentioned, it's it's teenagers. When you're 18 and 19, you're teenagers. You're still boys playing against men. 22, and I saw that when Jim McIlvain, Damon Key, and Rob Logderman were at Marquette, when they were freshmen and sophomores, they could get pushed around, but. By junior year, yeah. they became consistent. They become men. You don't have those ups and downs that you, that you do. Mm-hmm. Now, one interesting thing about the Marquette next year is that they have Sam Hauser, who is one of the best all-around players Marquette's had. They have his brother Joey coming in, who's about two inches taller and possibly a little better than Sam. They also have Thurl Bailey's son, who's coming back after a Mormon mission, who, when he left in um, uh, two years ago was kind of a Reggie Miller type player out in Utah. He was um, 6'7 and about 180. 
Now he's six nine and about two fifteen. So he's coming. Joey Hauser is six nine. Ed Morrow is six seven. So I think the the DePaul game that you saw last Saturday, well, when we're uh, taping this, um, that game you'll 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 avoid that in the future because you'll have the veteran toughness like an Ed Morrow that won't let. A right. DePaul team out rebound them. Well, you know, and here's the other thing about if you're ever wondering, folks, about can Marquette win a national championship? Well, they did, and and you'll say, well, yeah, but that was a long time ago, back in 1977, and and obviously college basketball has changed 50 times over since then. But the fact is, Villanova's won a national championship, and uh, that's a school that's very similar to Marquette in many respects, from the urban campus to everything else that goes goes with it. Um, you know, there's no question about that. Furthermore, John, I think that in the next couple of years, this FBI probe into these major programs might has a chance of upending and changing college basketball as we know it today, if they follow through with this. Now, that's a big if. Um, but there are some big programs that have been brought to their knees, not the least of which is Louisville, whom I saw earlier this year, Arizona, whom I've seen many times in the last uh, few years. But, um, you know, those are programs that get top players year in, year out. Uh, you know, you wonder about a program. How does a program, any program, I understand Kansas and Kentucky and Duke and North Carolina, these are blue blood programs, folks. But how do they get? The five-star recruits every single year. And what we're finding out is that, well, there are some reasons, and they may not all be legal, either with the NCAA or, or um, you know, with the federal government. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think that things are going to change a little bit. And, and maybe those programs won't be getting as many of the, the blue-chip prospects, and maybe those will fall to some programs like, uh, you know, like a, a Xavier or um, a Marquette or somewhere else like that. And I just look at what's happening in college basketball today. I think there is much better um, uh, parity, and, and I think that bodes well for a program like Marquette. I think it's a great point, and also with the uh, the one and done programs, yeah, the one and done players. Uh, I think a few years ago, Lehigh beat Duke when Jabari Parker. I think Parker and Hood were eighteen and nineteen year old players, and Parker was gassing out at the end of a long ACC run and in the tournament. And Lehigh had twenty two and twenty three year old men, and they played. Look at South Carolina last year. Yeah. Frank Martin had that team as freshmen, had them four years, and they're a veteran team. They came within an eyelash of being in the final game. Uh, in fact, they, they might have taken uh, some of the energy out of um, Gonzaga. But, um, yeah, I think there is, there is a chance, and what you need to do is not get the elite player, the, the one-and-done player, but if you can get the next play, the next step down, yeah. the top player, and – and the Hausers are that's what exactly you really, what you want. You know, Tom. Uh, you know, Tom Izzo talked about this. Now he gets his share of one and dones, but not as many as like a Kentucky or a Duke or teams like that. He said, "What you want is a guy who's real good. So you want that four-star, three-star recruit who's going to stay a while." And and that's really what it's all about, you know. And and we there's a program over in Madison that develops four-year players. They get 
three-star recruits coming in, and by the time they leave, they should be five-star recruits based on the way the program develops them. It's a different way of doing business. But um, to kind of wrap this up, you you know, you look at uh, college basketball today and where are the big teams? Well, Michigan State, obviously, Virginia, I think, is the best team right now in the country because they can stop anybody. Uh, Villanova is still very good. Xavier has had a surprisingly great year, in my opinion. I I certainly think Duke has maybe the best uh, front-line talent, maybe not as deep. I spent some time uh, this winter in the Big 12. They have the best point guards, scoring point guards I have seen in college basketball in probably two decades, maybe three. Um, you know, when you look at, at uh, you know, Keenan Evans, who's now banged up at uh, um, uh, Texas Tech, and Devontae Graham at Kansas, and the young kid, you know, at uh, Oklahoma State, or Oklahoma, rather, um, you know, you look at those kids, those guards are better than anybody I've seen playing, including the Brunson kid at Villanova that I've seen playing in the Big Ten or the Big East, and and that's really John, when you get to the NCAA tournament, look at the guards. They will tell you who has a better shot at winning in that particular game. Absolutely. And the other thing is the three-point shooting. Who gets hot? Yep. And if you look at uh, Wisconsin with Dick Bennett getting to the Final Four, they shot 60% from three. If you look at Tom Crean and the 2003 Marquette team, they were with Steve Novak and Travis Diener. They were shooting about 60% from three. That's the key fact. It's the guards and the three-point shooting. Three-point shooting has revolutionized the game. It's not that that far uh, of a shot. And if you get hot at the right time, absolutely. John Dodds, we're going to leave it there for this week. We'll come back with you next week. We'll talk a little bit of of Packers uh, in our next podcast. That'll do it for this edition of the Play-By-Play podcast. If you'd like to get a hold of me, drop me a line or an email at wayne.laravee at packersradio.com.